Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And he has given us an amazing day to celebrate the glorious resurrection of his son. And we are incredibly thankful that we are counted in his number so that we can rejoice in his resurrection and that we can live in his resurrection day in and day out. Now, I know it's a really strange place to start an Easter morning sermon, but Christmas is actually incredibly relevant to the Easter story. In fact, Christmas is the promise and Easter is the proof. Way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 21, it says about Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was this event in which he would save his people from their sins. Well, he would save you. He would save me. He would save all of those who turn to him in faith from their sins. And Easter is that moment where all of those promises have come to pass, have been realized, have been authenticated, have been proven true. Saving people from their sins, though, required something incredibly radical. Another human couldn't be the substitute. Another human could not have done the saving because we had all sinned. And animals couldn't save people because animals are not made in the image of God. So all those sacrifices that the Old Testament made, while it was simply a sign of what needed to happen, blood needed to be shed in order for sin to be atoned. So God had to do it himself. There were no other options. Man couldn't do it. Nature couldn't do it. God had to intervene, step in, and save people from their sins. So enter the birth, life, and death of Jesus into history. So how do we know all of that was successful? Enter Easter. Now I read a book about New Tribe Missions, and it's a group of missionaries that go into remote parts of the earth and witness the gospel. And sometimes this is the first contact that that indigenous tribe has ever had with a Christian, let alone an outsider. And I remember one story where a couple of missionaries went into a village and started sharing the gospel, talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, the fulfillment of the law, how sin had gripped all of us, how anyone who turns to Christ could be saved, talked about the Passion Week, both Palm Sunday, all the events of that week, as well as the trial, the beating, the crucifixion, the death of Christ, and then his resurrection. And as the missionaries were starting to explain this, one of the older tribesmen told them to stop and said, we have a story we want to tell you. And so the tribesmen related this story. He said, many years ago, we had a famine, and it was very difficult for us to find food at all. And so people would gather their food, put it in a common house, and then the, the chief of the tribe would distribute it to the people's needs. And they realized that this famine was going to last a long time, so they did a stockpile, and then they would distribute the food every day. 
And throughout that process, they noticed someone was stealing from their reserves. And this was very upsetting to the chief, and the chief gathered the entire tribe, the entire village together and said, I decree as the chief that the person who is caught stealing from this storehouse will be flogged with a whip until they are unconscious. He set a very severe penalty in place with the hopes that that would deter the criminal, someone from stealing. Well, a couple days went by and no one was stealing. And the chief thought to himself, okay, I must have done the right thing. This warning definitely stopped people. And about the third or fourth night, one of the guards who was watching the storehouse caught someone. And the whole tribe was awoken out of the dead of sleep that night. And the chief, angry, but thankful that the thief was caught, called for the thief to be tied to a tree and beaten until unconscious. It was dark, it was night, and they eventually built a fire and they saw exactly who the thief was. It was the chief's eight-year-old daughter. What a dilemma that the chief had. He had to be a man of his word. He was leading his people. And so the penalty for stealing and getting caught was beating, whipped. But how could he do that to his eight-year-old daughter? Daughter was guilty. She confessed, I was the one who was stealing the entire time. And they tied her to the tree. And the chief called for whoever was going to execute the punishment to step forward. And everyone was horrified. And as that man raised that whip for the very first strike on that eight-year-old daughter, that eight-year-old girl, the chief immediately ran, gave her a hug, and covered her. And so when that first whip struck, it struck his back his side, protecting and shielding his daughter at all costs. And then the second strike came, and the third, and the fourth. He was weeping at this point. So was the entire village. And that executioner kept beating. And that father, the chief, kept protecting his daughter until he was unconscious and the punishment was over. The next day he woke up in tremendous pain and agony. And the elder tribesmen turned to the missionaries and said, so this is what Jesus did for us, but then you're telling me he died and then rose again? What? tremendous love this Jesus must have for us, the poor daughters of the world that needed to be shielded and protected. In John chapter 20, we are given the story of Jesus' resurrection. 
It starts in the very first two verses with an amazement, an astonishment, a surprise on behalf of the disciples because they thought the tomb had been robbed. In verse 1 of chapter 20 of John, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Remember, the stone had been rolled in front of the entrance because the chief priests and some of the Jewish leaders were afraid the disciples would steal the body and say there was a resurrection. So we know from the other gospel accounts that um, Pilate and the Romans sealed the tomb with a large stone that not one or two people could move. It took a team of people, and they posted guards. And so when Mary got to the tomb, she was surprised, shocked, astonished that the stone had already been moved from the entrance. Verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one with Jesus loved, that is John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. This whole idea that Jesus would suffer and die and rise again was still very surprising to the disciples. They saw his suffering, they saw his death, they saw him limp on that tree, on that cross, lifeless. And Jesus had explained to them, in time, they'll tear down me, and I will be rebuilt in three days. Just like Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days, and then resurrected to new life, so the same will happen to me. But they were shocked, they were surprised, they were taken back. They thought for sure someone had stole Jesus. Why would someone have stolen? Why would someone have taken him out of that tomb? No one knows. It wasn't the disciples, though. It wasn't Peter, James, John. It wasn't the other disciples. It certainly wasn't the ladies that surrounded Jesus for care. They went to the tomb that morning fully expecting to see him dead on that stone slab and then preparing his body for final burial. And he's gone. And so Mary runs back to the disciples and say, help, someone stole Jesus' body. And so, for one of the few times in Scripture, there is a foot race occurring in the next two verses, in verse 3 and 4 of John chapter 20. It says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They started running. They're in Jerusalem, the tomb is outside of Jerusalem, so they start running to the tomb, having a race, and both were running in verse 4. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's John's little subtle way of saying he won the race. So John, being quicker and faster, outran Peter. Maybe it took a shortcut, we don't know. But the two raced and ran to the tomb. They needed to see with their own eyes what happened to Jesus. Why is it empty? John gets there first in this race of the disciples. And then they begin to visually inspect what was going on in that tomb. Verse 5 says, He bent over and looked at the strips of the linen lying there, but did not go in. So they're on the outside of the tomb. They're apprehensive to go in. It's dark in the tomb. It's a cave. And they just kind of peek around the corner. I don't know about you, but I can totally understand their feeling of apprehensiveness of going into a tomb. I can't imagine. I, I know what the feeling is like just going to a cemetery. 
I know that there's no boogeyman. I know that there's no ghost. I know there's nothing that'll get me. But there's just that natural apprehension that this is a place where people have died. And this is a place where people are buried. There is sanctity there. There's a sense of respect there. But there's also that sense of this kind of makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't like death. And I don't like seeing people who have passed away. And so when John and Peter start looking into that tomb, I know that all of those emotions are rushing with them. They're rushing with, where is Jesus? They're rushing with that idea, this is a place where people have died and been buried, although Jesus was the first one buried in this particular cave of a tomb. Yet they're looking, and they see the linen that Jesus was wrapped in, but they don't go into it yet. Verse 6 says, Then Simon Peter came along behind him, that is behind John, and went straight into the tomb. If you know anything about Peter, you realize that Peter is abrupt, sometimes abrasive, and he is the guy who has the typical foot-in-mouth disease. He is the guy who is the first one to raise his hand. Jesus, no, that's not going to happen to you. Jesus, can we make our home here? Jesus, can I walk on water? He was the first one. You knew if it was on someone's mind, Peter would say it before he thought through the consequences of what he was going to say. And so as John is apprehensive, just peeking into the tomb, Peter rushes by him, rushes into the tomb without any hesitation, goes straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen, linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, what was typical when someone was buried is that they'd be wrapped in a cloth. In this case, two different pieces of cloth. Linen strips, kind of like ace bandages wrapped around Jesus' body, and then a linen or a cloth just placed over his head. And this was all done in preparation for the burial ritual, which would be filled with spices and things like that to keep the odor down as the body decayed. So all of this was particular normal, except for the fact that all the linen was in a nice little pile over here, and the cloth that was placed on top of Jesus' face was laid separately. So we had two separate piles of burial cloth, which would have been incredibly weird if someone had stolen the body, why they would have taken the time to unwrap his body then, uh, then unwrap his head and place everything neatly by the side, they would want to get in and out of the tomb as quick as possible. They don't want to stand there unwrapping him and then putting him in something else and taking him. They would have just taken the whole body with all the wrappings and the linen face covering all at once. But we know that no one robbed him. We know that no one stole the body. No one prepared the body ahead of time. He rose from the dead, no longer needing the trappings of the linen that wrapped his body and the linen covering that was over his face and over his head. He didn't need it. At this moment, the disciples, I think, are starting to put one and one together and coming up with two. They're starting to think, Jesus did talk about his resurrection. We didn't understand that. We didn't certainly believe it. We needed him to be a king. We needed him to overthrow the religious authorities and the civil authorities. We needed him to get Rome out of the picture so we could be God's kingdom once again with a king sitting on the throne that loves God. 
So they thought Jesus was going to be that warrior king that ushered in this moment of peace and restoration of Israel, and that wasn't the case. He was a suffering servant. He was a chief that shielded and protected his people from harm, and he took the punishment instead of us to the point not of passing out, but to the point of death. And now he's risen. And now the tomb is empty. Now the tomb echoes. There's no one in there. But the old discarded trappings of what death looked like. Linen wraps, bandages, and a linen cloth for the face. And they started to believe. In John 20, verse 8, it says, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. So John, even seeing Peter go in, even seeing Peter probably gasping and wondering what happened, after John saw that it was safe, John went in as well. And John saw the emptiness of the tomb. And it hit him. And he records that in verse 8. He saw and believed. He saw the empty tomb and he believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus was risen. He believed that Jesus was gone. He believed that death didn't hold Jesus. He believed the message that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he was indeed the person who would save his people from their sins, that he indeed was the shield taking the beating, taking the just and right punishment, taking the pain of sin upon himself, bearing it to the point of death, death on a cross. For Peter, for John, for Mary, for you, and for me. He believed. Verse 9, even in that belief, says, in a parenthetical statement, just so John kind of clarifies things, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had arise from the dead. They didn't have a full understanding of what was happening. They knew Jesus rose, but they hadn't connected all the pieces. They hadn't connected everything in Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant. It has nothing to do with Israel. It's talking about Jesus. And they realize, okay, there's suffering there, there's pain there, there's agony there. But there's also promise of a people made whole again because of Jesus. And they thought, how does that whole sacrificial system put into play what Jesus did on the cross? They're, they're thinking through that. It's hard for us to understand the situation that the disciples were in that very first Sunday morning when the resurrection had taken place. Because we sit this side of history some 2,000 plus years later and we have the privilege of knowing and understanding and standing on the shoulders of others who have gone before us that have read through Scripture, studied Scripture, understood Scripture. We've had Sunday schools and, and, and messages and all sorts of activities as children through adults informing us about what Scripture has said and how Jesus fulfilled it. We live in a precious time where we have ample understanding and knowledge of what Jesus promised and then what he fulfilled. 
The disciples were day one. What day is this? It's Sunday. Where's Jesus? He rose from the dead. Why? They hadn't put all that together yet. But yet scripture records that even though they had a small understanding of what was going on, not a complete understanding that would be filled in as they matured in time, but they believed. They believed. They didn't have to have everything understood. They just needed to know, Jesus died for me, and Jesus rose for me. I don't know how all that connects. I don't know all the fancy theological language that's attached to it. I can't recite all the verses in the Old Testament that relate to it. I can't even find some of the books in the Old Testament. Doesn't matter. They saw the empty tomb, and they realized that Jesus rose from the dead, and they believed it. That's all that's necessary for faith in Christ, is a belief that he died and rose on my behalf. All the other things in Scripture, all the other knowledge you can acquire and gain in time, but that is the simplest message to mankind that God could make. Your sin deserves punishment. My son shielded you from that punishment to the point of death. And to prove that that punishment was real, sincere, and authentic, he's rising again from the dead. Don't have to have a full understanding of it. You don't have to be able to list all 66 books in the New Testament. You don't have to know the names of all 12 tribes or 12 disciples. It's, it's not important to your salvation. What's important to make you right with God again is that belief that Jesus died on your behalf and that he rose again. That's what Peter and John saw. That's what they believed. That's what Mary Magdalene and the others saw, and they believed. And that's what people saw and believed time and time and time again until the Holy Spirit brought to us the fullness of Scripture so that we might have even a broader understanding, a more complete belief, a more complete faith, to believe that Jesus indeed was the promised one of Christmas and the fulfillment made at Easter. That section concludes in verse 10 and says, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. They didn't know what to do. Completely understanding. I completely relate to that. They are struck in the face with a miracle of miracles, literally. They are struck in the face with an emptiness of the tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. What do they do now? And I imagine it is racing through their minds. What did Jesus say we were supposed to do? What did Jesus say we were supposed to do? What did Jesus say we were supposed to do? And they probably start talking to each other. Well, remember he said this? Well, what did that mean? What did that mean? And they're probably recounting all of these stories, trying to figure out, what do we then do? Jesus then later on in chapter 20 appears to them. He then appears to Thomas, who didn't believe the report of the others. And eventually they find out exactly what to do. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of salvation, and they're called to walk in it. And at the end of chapter 20, John writes, 
these words, which are words for us to take home today. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. This doesn't record everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus did, and every miracle he performed. Only those things that the Holy Spirit deems as necessary for our faith, for our salvation, and for our understanding. We don't have to worry about or wonder, oh, what else did he do? That's irrelevant. What's relevant is what Scripture has revealed of what he's done. That he shielded us. That he protected the guilty. That he took the punishment. That he died on our behalf. And that according to the scriptures, he rose again as proof that he can save his people from their sins. But John is caught in a moment as he's concluding his book with just one chapter left, saying there's lots of things that Jesus did. Some of the gospels record other things. Acts records other things. Some of the epistles talk about more events in Jesus's life. He says, wow, we could write a lot. In fact, I believe it's in the book of Revelation that John writes, if I had written down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill up all the books in the world with amazing stories and truth and evidence that he's the Son of God who's come to save a sinner such as me. And he concludes in verse 31, where we conclude today. But these are written, that is scripture is written, that you may believe, just like John did that morning, just as his eyes began to open up and understand, Jesus is not just a good moral teacher of ethics. He's not just a miracle worker. But that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one from Christmas story. He is indeed the Christ, the appointed one, the anointed one, the one chosen by God, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The whole point the whole point of Scripture, John says, is not that you can recite any verse that I ask you to. No. The whole point of Scripture is so that you would believe. Have ample evidence, ample opportunity, ample words that speak to your heart and mind that Jesus is the promised one, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and that believing in him you too may have life. Life that is eternal. Life that has no more part in death, no more part in pain, no more part in sorrow, no more part in weakness. That you too one day would be like Christ, risen from the dead. Easter is the story that proves Christmas's promises. Jesus is that chief who shielded his young daughter on our behalf. Jesus is the Son of God. 
Jesus is our promised Messiah. And John says there is something for you to do. Instead of just going home, it's to believe. And if you've not believed that message, now's the time to do it. It doesn't matter you're not inside these four walls. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a lounge chair. It doesn't matter if you haven't changed out of your pajamas for the morning. What matters is as you contemplate and see that empty tomb, do you believe? And it's not hard. There's not some magical formula. It's not complicated. It's simply saying, Lord, I don't have all the understanding that some other people have about your son, Jesus, but I need to be shielded. I need to be shielded from the punishment of my sin, from the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the deception, whatever it is, I need protection from it. All you got to do is say, help, save me. And he said, I will. I will. It doesn't have to be a 10-minute prayer drawn out, walking down the aisle, prostrating yourself in front of an altar. It's simply crying out to God, save me. And he's promised that every prayer uttered like that, even in silence, it doesn't have to be held loud. He saves us. And I know that I may be talking to the choir here. Some of you go, Tim, I know that. I've believed that from a young child. Or I remember the day when that came to my mind and I cried out, save me. What are we to do with this message? We are to still believe it as the first day we heard it. We are still to acknowledge Jesus is my shield and protector. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the fulfillment of Christmas's promise. We still believe it. We still hold on to it. And we still daily cry out to him, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. And he holds out that promise to us as well. I will forgive you. I will shield you. I will protect you. Let's pray. Father, in a time where we feel very unsafe, or we could feel that, in a time where we could feel that we've lost control, Lord, remind us, your people, of this simple, precious truth of history, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and he did it. Lord, may that simple yet eternal truth comfort us, Comfort each one of us. Unite each one of us in spirit that we might have the comfort of knowing our shield and protector. Death could not hold him. Death could not conquer him. Death could not own him. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. We will see you next week right here in the sanctuary from the comfort of your living room, kitchen, dining room, bedroom, wherever you might be. 
Make sure you continually follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates, as well as our website for news and announcements. And again, as Lori said, if you've not received an email for the last couple weeks from us, it means we do not have a current email address for you. We'd love to email you once a week just to kind of get you updated on things. And remember, if you have the opportunity to love someone today and the rest of the week, and God puts that person on your mind, reach out to them, love on them, and minister to them. Take care and see everybody next week. God bless.